If you'll take your Bible, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. There's a lot to say in 1 Corinthians 10. That's the reason this is our, our third sermon. In the first sermon, we looked at verses 1 to 13. We're reminded that, that those who follow Christ would flee from every kind of evil. Verses 14 through 22, God's faithfulness to you empowers you to cooperate with Him as He sanctifies you. Now the text that's before us today tells us to receive the good gifts of God with thanksgiving. In other words, your life must be lived for the glory of God. And so we pick up at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. We're going to read through 11.1. Here's God's word. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. We recognize that without that Spirit, we are reading words on paper. And yet, with the help of your Spirit, you nourish your people on the very words of life. Give us ears that we might hear what your Spirit says. And I pray, God, once again, that you would be willing to use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Your understanding of freedom is a pretty good predictor of how you will live out that freedom. A couple of months back, I I shared with you Booker T. Washington's account of the, the older population of freed slaves who, upon gaining their freedom, chose to return to the plantations of their enslavement because they couldn't even comprehend freedom. In a couple of months, thousands of 18 year olds are going to arrive in Auburn. And many of them are going to think that this is their first taste of freedom. And from that perception, many of them will make horrendous choices. Horrendous choices with damaging consequences. 
Some are going to carry those emotional and physical scars through the rest of their lives, all because of what they think they know about freedom. Two examples that tell us that your understanding of freedom is a pretty good predictor in how you're going to live out that freedom. Around my dinner table the other night, we were talking about this sermon. One of my children began to recognize that I, I was using the term freedom in Christ. And, and, and the word freedom sounded different to her ears than the way it's used in a civics or government class. She said, we keep talking about freedom in Christ. What does that mean? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Everyone who practices sin is enslaved to sin. Enslaved, that's the opposite of freedom. What's the solution, Jesus? He says, well, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Is Jesus talking about freedom of speech? Is He talking about freedom of the press? Freedom of religion? Freedom to keep and bear arms? No. When Jesus speaks of freedom, He means spiritual freedom. In Christ, you are delivered from sin's dominion over you. And so everything that Paul says about freedom and Christian liberty is guided through the lens of what Jesus has already done for you. He has freed you from sin. And so, every other life decision flows from the deliverance that Jesus has already given to you. Because Christ has freed me from sin, I don't actually want to fall back into it. Because Christ has freed many of you from sin, I don't want to lead you in the name of freedom to fall into it yourself. The whole world tells you that freedom is really just the ability to live your life unhindered. To embrace every desire and indulge yourself. And so maybe you've learned to justify self-centeredness under the name of freedom. Perhaps you've learned to excuse sin under the guise of freedom. In a letter that says a lot about freedom in Christ, true freedom isn't self-centered. True freedom isn't self-serving. True freedom is aware of the glory of God and the good of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, When exercised rightly, your freedom in Christ points the way to Christ. Now, Our main points are drawn from several concepts that interplay with each other in our text. The first is good gifts and good conscience. The second is freedom and thanksgiving. The third is reason and method. And so we'll start with good gifts, good conscience. Let's be clear, this is his phrase. It's the second time that he's used this phrase in this letter, but the the people at the church of Corinth began to misuse his phrase, or they began to apply it in ways that he never meant it. He probably said it when he went into the cities that were full of paganism, and there was a synagogue, and he walked into the synagogue, and he said to them who misunderstood the law, this phrase, Or when he spoke to address pagans in their worship with all the irrational, quirky, man-made rules that pagans come up with. Paul would say 
This phrase, all things are lawful. Sometimes what is said is not the same as what is heard. As a Jew now converted to faith in Christ, Paul meant, hey, what I eat and what I drink does not commend me to God. Likewise, what I refuse to eat, what I refuse to drink doesn't earn me the affirmation and the smile of God. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is grace received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, of course, all things are lawful. It also reminds us, doesn't it, that there are thousands of circumstances that are not addressed directly in the Bible. And so any mature Christian will apply God's Word with the help of the Holy Spirit into various given situations. But all of life can't be, excuse me, all of the Christian life can't be whittled down to a checklist of, of things that Christians do and things that Christians don't do. What they heard is nothing matters. As if Christianity leaves you with no moral law, no help from the Holy Spirit. So you loosely believe that Jesus is God's Son, that's helpful. You loosely hold that He rose from the dead. But those beliefs don't have to influence everything else except your head. So Paul comes back to his quote. He said it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And here in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. But not all things build up. See, freedom must be viewed through the lens of, of benefit. What would be good for me? What would be good for other believers? It's true as a believer in Christ. You know something that, believers, that those who don't know Christ would be confused about. And that is that in proper context, the Christian has far more freedom than the unbeliever would ever presume. Of course, many of you did not grow up this way. So perhaps Santa, excuse me, Jesus was spoken of like he's a cosmic Santa Claus. Sees you when you're sleeping, knows if you're awake, knows if you've been bad or good. Be good for goodness sake. And you live your life going, I hope he doesn't. See that? I forgot to make my bed. I don't really want to eat the vegetables. I'm really not doing so well coloring between the lines. Parents, rules inside a home are an essential part of life. But a child's love and acceptance before God cannot be tied to that obedience. On one hand, teach your children that, that, that God offers to be their God and He offers a relationship with them through His perfect Son, Jesus Christ. On the other hand, this is how you function as a, as a member of this family. We have many things to do and all of us pitch in because everyone is a part of this family. You're loved no matter what. You're a treasured member of the family no matter what. But let's get the work done. Here's what I mean. The conquering authority of King Jesus that wins 
everything for his people cannot simply be boiled down into a list of common rules. And when it is, it's actually devoid of the supreme reign over everything under the created order. And so to teach your children to live with one another as though Christians are those who do not do this or do that. To live yourselves. So Christianity is just another list of rules. Is to rob Christ of a portion of his grandeur. Here's an example. In a Christian school far away. And a long time ago. A teacher who I suspect felt a little bit iffy about Christ's own love for her. Said to one of my children. If Jesus came in the room. Would he be pleased with this sloppy, cursive handwriting? It's not only manipulative and passive-aggressive. It's also telling a lie about Jesus. My handwriting does not determine whether Jesus smiles on me or not, and thank goodness. God's infinite love is the one thing that determines whether he smiles upon me and that love is offered through Jesus Christ and good handwriting doesn't get better love children need to learn cursive yep you and I need to make our beds need to eat your vegetables yep I do But none of those things will make Christ smile upon me. Man-made rules do not earn love from God. And they certainly cannot hold you in security of God's love. You see, all things are lawful. That's a massive concept. God's gift of Christ for us takes this concept of legalism and and it knocks it off the table. Rest secure in God's love for you in Christ first. And then think through all that God has given you through a different lens. And here is the end result. And this is why I began in this place. The legalist runs to freedom like it's an opportunity to grab up everything, to gorge on everything, to stuff his face with everything. Child who knows he's loved by God and is secure in Christ looks at freedom through a different lens. What what would be helpful? What would build up the body of believers? It's it's really the difference of an 18-year-old with his stupid fake ID going to Walmart and buying a couple of bottles of Boone's Farm so that he can go back and swallow the Boone's Farm cheap wine. Versus a person who's developed a taste for a good Cabernet and can taste it and enjoy the richness. It's the the difference of one who is led by immature and rash passions. The other is mature Certain, guided by the awareness that a father who would give me all things wants me to use those things for good. 
Now he gives you a specific example. It's in verse 25. He says, Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now these are two really specific applications that the people at Corinth could completely relate to. Let's say you want a nice cut of meat. And the only place to buy that meat is at the meat market. Do you have to delve every scenario in your mind of how this T-bone steak got to the meat market? No. Number two, suppose an unbeliever invites you over for dinner and he sets before you this really nice plate of good food. Do you have to think about every single issue that possibly could have occurred with the food before it's brought to the table? To both circumstances, the Apostle Paul says, no, because these are good gifts given to you by God. Receive them with a good conscience. You may enjoy that T-bone steak exactly for what it is. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's actually a radically different way to live your life. Our first century brothers and sisters are are staring at their food in Corinth and they're racking their consciences. Did this cow begin in the temple of Aphrodite on top of the hill? Did somebody sacrifice this thing to a demon and am I going to eat the demon? That's not the contemporary issue that you're dealing with. That's not why you stare at food. You stare at food and feel guilt for a very different reason. It says 427 calories. But this lettuce has three. And advertisers have begun to pick up on your guilt. And so they use words like decadent and succulent and sinful And because they want you to think that eating is sinful, they say things like, indulge yourself. And they use these words to make you think like the 18-year-old drunk kid. Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm so evil. They want you to treat the good gifts of God like that? What if you were to take your cues from the Bible? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You may eat the cheeseburger. You may have the cookie. You may have the ice cream cone. And all those things given to you by God are not in themselves sinful. You don't have to feel decadent or wicked for partaking of them. You are not indulging your sinful pleasures by taking them. Listen to what the Bible says on matters of food and drink. You will enjoy the good gifts of God that have been given to you. And you will learn not to grab them up like a drunk kid new to campus. Instead, you'll learn to think about it with the thoughtful awareness That all of this belongs to God. And he made it. And it's possible for me to enjoy this. 
And then you begin to enjoy those things with, with a moderation that only seems possible for somebody who understands this is a gift of God. Instead of staring at this good thing in front of you. Instead of trying to think about whether I need to feel guilty. Paul says, what if you looked upward instead of inward? What if you looked at the one who gave the good gift? Suddenly you'd begin to employ a God-given wisdom. Would this good gift of God be a benefit to me? Would it be a blessing to other people? Or do I need to enjoy it because it soothes my anger? Helps me when I feel lonely? Squelches my guilt? Hides my pain and sorrow? Naturally, everything I've just communicated needs to be understood with nuance. But when it's understood, it completely flips how you receive the good gifts God has given to you. This is how you exalt your king while enjoying his treasures. Your freedom in Christ points the way to Christ. Good gifts, good conscience, next freedom and thanksgiving. Everything that has been given to you by God is meant to be enjoyed with biblical freedom. It's meant to be received with thanksgiving. And so the Apostle Paul now proposes an example from which you need to think about pointing to Christ. Same scenario. You're invited to the home of an unbeliever. But instead of saying nothing about the food, verse 28, someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Now, the words used in this scenario actually indicate that the person who lets you know about the food that has been sacrificed is themselves a, a thoughtful unbeliever. They're actually trying to be conscientious. Perhaps they've encountered Christian sensibilities and the person is aware that as a Christian they might have conscience matters about this. What do you do in a scenario like that? Paul says you think about the other person. One writer says it would be thoughtless to rebuff such courtesy. To eat as well as needlessly making the other Christians who have scruples look overly earnest. Here's a couple of examples that you might encounter in our polite southern Christianish culture. These have both happened to me. They're going to sound a little different for you, but it's common for me to be around a person like you are who might have a little loose speech. They might curse or swear. And while they're using that foul language, they'll say something to me like, hey, what do you do for a living? And I go, well, I'm a pastor. To which the person might say, oh, expletive. I'm sorry for my foul mouth. I cuss too much. What should I say? What should you say in that situation? One option is to cuss right back at them. That'd be unexpected. They'd probably find it funny. But the better way is to be aware that they're trying to be conscientious. And continue to guard my own speech for their sake. 
They have expectations. I'm thinking of them. I'm not trying to shock them. My freedom in Christ doesn't give me license to be cavalier with my language just because God would forgive me. My freedom in Christ is meant to point the way to Christ. I want to, uh, to leave them with the awareness that a follower of Christ isn't consumed with filthy language. I've actually been transformed from that. That's the work of Christ. Point to it. Or, I'm at a social gathering. I have an alcoholic beverage because I'm over 21. I know I can receive this beverage with freedom and thanksgiving. And someone who is too far into the evening comes up to me and says, Hey, the preacher drinks. I didn't know preachers could drink. They'll say to you, Oh, you're a Christian? I didn't think Christians could drink. How do you handle that? One option is to drink that first drink real quick and go grab another one to show them that you can. I'm allowed to drink. Better option is perhaps to think of that other person. How can I consider the fact that this person is dealing with mixed signals that they are confused about? I don't have to set down the drink. I don't have to go pick up water, but I can. My freedom in Christ points the way to Christ. In this case, it might actually be better to exemplify freedom by receiving it with thanksgiving. Display the difference between enjoying one of God's good gifts and misusing one. Now the moment for you will require spirit-led sensibility. How you use God's good gifts says a great deal about what you believe. It's not necessary to flaunt your freedom just because you can. That's a really immature tactic. Oh, I got freedom. I'll show you. Take a look at verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, and why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? It's, it's a rhetorical question. You don't want your freedom indicted or denounced or accused because of someone else's perception. And so these matters of conscience apply in two different directions. First, someone else's conscience infringes on yours. If, please understand, if liberty to you means getting your rights, then circumstances like this are going to feel like a loss of freedom for you. I guess I can't eat the meat. I guess I can't have the drink. For the last 15 months, some have felt the same loss of freedom over another person's convictions about a mask. But if you understand this passage correctly, you can't lose your true freedom in Christ. Because you cannot lose what Christ has already done for you. You are already free in Him. And so these unusual scenarios that we come across in life are simply new opportunities for us to learn to wield our freedom with love. My absolute freedom from sin allows me to consider what honors Christ and is best for the other person in a given situation. 
That's actually where this letter is going. Because you've been to weddings and you've heard somebody preach 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. You see, actually, the the point is that freedom, rightly understood, builds to the point of love. Because I've been loved, I can show my freedom to others through love. Your freedom is actually a gift given to you by God. But your relationship with God is not purely a vertical matter. The truly free Christian understands that horizontal relationships are the turf upon which I live out my freedom. Matters of conscience apply two ways. First, somebody else's conscience infringes upon you. Secondly, from your conscience, you seek to bind the conscience of someone else. Well, you know, really good Christians raise their kids this way. Really good Christians follow this particular sleep cycle. Really good Christians homeschool. Really good Christians give things up for Lent. Really good Christians don't eat meat on Fridays. Church history actually tells us that this is how monasticism began. This is why people began to pursue being monks. Emperor Constantine is converted in 312 AD. And after that, very few Christians are martyred for the cause of Christ. And it had begun to be that so many Christians wanted that mark of faithfulness that suddenly when it's removed, what do the really good Christians do? What do truly faithful Christians do? Well, Justo Gonzalez in his book, The Story of Christianity, explains it like this. Since martyrdom was no longer possible, these people believed that the true athlete of Christ must continue training, if no longer martyrdom, than for monastic life. The 4th century thus witnessed a massive exodus of devoted Christians from civil society out into the deserts of Egypt and Syria. Many issues are not dealt with specifically in the Bible. It's one thing to believe something is best personally. It's another to instruct another person in your position as if it is the only biblical conclusion that a sincere Christian could ever possibly have. How do you think through these various scenarios? Well, does your freedom point someone to Christ? Or does your freedom enslave someone else? Does your freedom elevate the Lord Jesus, or does it elevate you above others? Good gifts are meant to be received with a good conscience. Freedom rightly understood should evoke a a heart of thanksgiving, and so we close with reason and method. Now, I want you to take a look at verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
An offense is anything over which a person might stumble. It's an obstacle on the path to meeting the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, I don't want to trip up either of the two major categories that exist in the church. I don't want to trip up Jews. I don't want to trip up Gentiles. I don't want to trip up anybody in the church at all. And so I take myself and I set myself aside. And this is the crescendo reason to which he has been building this point. What does it say? That they may be saved. Your freedom in Christ points the way to Christ. Or if I state it negatively, don't let your freedom get in the way of the salvation of someone else. Long before I became a a pastor, I sat in the pews of a church in Birmingham and I heard a very young, very unwise, I now think, 27-year-old assistant pastor whose Alabama fanhood got in the way of his message. He's introducing the book of Jonah and he equates Nineveh that place that the prophet Jonah did not want to go with, with Auburn as if it's some God-forsaken wilderness. This is Birmingham. 50% of the people in the congregation were Auburn grads. 20 years later, I honestly can't tell you another thing he ever said publicly. But I remember that. It's the reason I think it would be foolish for a pastor, even a pastor in Auburn, to stand in front of a congregation on a Sunday morning and say War Eagle. Because that would be a stumbling block for a fan of another school. I think it would be foolish to tell people publicly who I vote for, to get on social media and try to direct people politically, or to preach social causes over the Word of God. Why? Why is that a big deal? Paul says, my A number one hope is to be no stumbling block to the salvation of another sinner. And there's a way to be a stumbling block. What if the church was shaped by that hope? To use every freedom I have to point to my Redeemer. To not offend people so that they never hear my main point. That's his reason. His method is found in what's very often considered the the thesis statement of the section. Look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is actually the point from which he's been working since the start of chapter 8. Charles Hodge, a 19th century Princeton theologian, said the sun is the center of the solar system. Men of the world make themselves the end of all of their actions. Philosophers tell us to make the good of others the end, and and, and by so doing they end up destroying the sentiment of religion by, by blending it with philanthropy. The Bible says make the glory of God the end. And when your heart's goal is God's glory, 
all the good for mankind is surprisingly accomplished. You see how different things would be if God's glory was the end goal? What do you need to stop talking about so that others would hear your hope in Christ? What agenda needs to be given a backseat so that others might hear of your hope in Christ? What obstacles have you accidentally set up that stands as a hindrance to Paul's stated purpose that they may be saved? Friends, your freedom in Christ points the way to Christ. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word.